Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, good whatever it is, wherever you may be. This is Nikki Acosta, and this is Cloud Unfiltered. Woohoo, this is Valard, and I'm happy to be here with you, Nikki, and I'm super happy to be with our guest here today. Randy, introduce yourself from your home studio. I'm Randy Bias. I am one of the early cloud pioneers and one of the pioneers in the OpenStack space. And I'm now at uh, Juniper Networks and just trying to lead the charge into the future and be the disruptor inside the big business. Never unfiltered. This is why we love Randy Bias because he always always unfiltered. It like it is always <laughs> unfiltered. And I didn't know that you were a house DJ. I mean, I guess you spin anything you said, but you uh, you are a big fan of the West Coast house, which is awesome. Do you have any mixes online, Randy? Uh, no, I need to start getting them up. I have old stuff, but it's it's really old from vinyl days. Now I've been moving uh, to Tractor and trying to get all digital and stuff. And I still have, probably can't see me behind me, but I have hundreds and hundreds of vinyl records. I either have to get a digital version of or, or you know, transfer. So it's a, it's a process. Well, not everybody understands house music. <laughs> a little reference for you. Uh, and we can make sandwiches old school. All right. Anyway, uh, getting back to the topic at hand, uh, we were talking pre-show and there's a lot going on. But before we get there, tell us about how you got to where you are today. You've had a really interesting tech career and story. Uh, it's it's kind of hard to shorten up. Let me let me try. So I um, I started in the valley when I was 19. And I started doing systems administration and engineering and then moved into network engineering, backbone engineering at ISPs. Uh, and then I moved into doing information security for a while. And I, I have this bad tendency to kind of be very, very early. So, for example, when I was doing ISPs, it was 1993, 1994. So I was not even quite transitioned to the commercial Internet yet. It's still the NSFNet backbone. Um, and then information security, it was like 97 to 99. I was really doing it full time, actually really into 2003, I guess. Um, so I just always kind of early and uh, that kind of progressed through SaaS and building data centers in Asia. And then, you know, kind of cloud thing came along and it was sort of this intersection of networking and storage and compute and security and knowing how all that would fit in a mega data center and like all this stuff was in my suite because I ended all sort of those infrastructure pieces and I, um, that's about the time I decided to start my own startup. And I um, started my first startup attempt in 2006. End of 2006, I took this open source tool that nobody had heard of in the end of 2006 called Puppet. And uh, kind of a big thing now, but at the time, the entire RC group was maybe 30 to 50 people globally. And uh, I built an orchestration system around it with a couple of buddies so that we could define and deploy and automatically scale up and down an interior web application on this other system called Amazon Web Services Elastic Compute Cloud, which was in private beta at the time. <laughs> the only thing you could get was a single size VM for 10 cents an hour. That was it. There's no balancing, no DNS, no VPC, uh, you know, nothing. I mean, it was way stripped down. And so, that was a little ahead of the curve, didn't quite get there, and we decided to scrap that. And then I wound up on my second startup, CloudScheme, um, which wound up being one of the pioneers in the OpenStack space. And then that was acquired by EMC. And EMC saw me as being somebody who could be startup guy and guy and help them transition to uh, more of a cloud-centric vendor business. And 
Uh, I tried to do that, and then they were acquired by Dell, and that plan got shot down, and uh, I moved over to Juniper to kind of do the same thing. So I'm in the cloud software business unit at Juniper, and our focus is on um, doing investments and, and building more competency around software and kind of the next generation of uh, uh, Juniper products. What a story. That was good. That was really concise. It's a lot of fun stuff. A lot of parties along the way. A lot of good, uh, good times back in the. Are you going to go to the OpenStack Summit in Australia? I don't think so. No. No. I'm going to miss. We're, this we're talking about the first one since I don't know, since a long time ago. Long time. <laughs> so we were we were talking about uh, some of the talks that you've been doing uh, out on the circuit. Uh, you, you've always been kind of uh, one of those forefront speakers at all of the events, uh, but you've been talking lately about services as a platform and continuous response. Tell us about those talks that you're giving and and uh, what the impetus was behind creating those talks. Yeah, so you can find more details on my blog, cloudscaling.com. That's cloud is in clouds and scaling is in scaling mountains. And I'll try to just summarize these. Services as a platform is an older notion that some of the other cloud kind of thought leaders and pundits were talking about before, like Lou Tucker, who's cloud, head of cloud computing at Cisco, and uh, James Urquhart. And uh, I just basically observed that if you go and look at what Amazon Web Services is doing today, the vast majority of their investments is neither in infrastructure as a service, nor in platform as a service, nor in software as a service. Actually, I, there's this fat middle layer in between infrastructure as a service and platform as a service that I'm calling services as a platform. Other people call it different things, IaaS++ I've heard. Um, but these are sort of like core functionality that's vital for an application to use, but in and of itself is really just a point solution. So, you know, is it single service? So, you know, messaging services, database services, notification services, queuing services, DNS, you know, all of those things sort of can be used individually. Um, but really what most people seem to use them for, if we look at like Netflix is the best example, is they assemble a, a fixed number of those Amazon Web Services services together and they basically make a custom pass for whatever the platform, for whatever the application is they're trying to deliver. So I think people are in this sort of like, you know, ongoing, you know, situation where they're like triaging their existing applications or new applications they want to build. And they say, okay, you know, is this something that somebody else can provide for us like CRM? Okay, let's just go use sales first. That's great. Put that away. We don't need to buy, build our own CM, CRM application. That doesn't make any sense. Okay, here we have a bunch of utility apps. You know, these are pretty small. They can fit in a very constrained environment. Let's just aggregate those all onto a platform as a service system because that's a constrained system and, you know, we can get leverage and operational efficiency that way. And then, but then you get to sort of like, well, okay, we've got key intellectual property here that's providing us competitive advantage, like the whole Netflix backend. And this is something where, you know, we can't fit it in a pass. And the reality is, is the infrastructure as a service is too low to the ground. We actually need to go and, you know, use things like DynamoDB and we need a messaging service because this is not something we want to build from scratch. So we're either going to, you know, put it together or not. And so um, services as a platform is just this idea that you can take all these different services and use them to build a platform kind of on a case by case basis. Um, and that's really where a lot of Amazon Web Services investment is going in there. And the reason I'm talking about it like this is that I think that people who are going to try to build a private cloud 
actually have to spend time in that same mentality. I mean, grinding out virtual machines on demand is useless. Whereas if they start to provide, you know, queuing services and messaging services and running, you know, Kubernetes clusters on demand for their developers, then their developers can can get 70, 80% of the work done for them because you built that service as a platform system that they need in the same way that Amazon did. If you don't, if you're just focused on, you know, you've got object storage and you know, block and VMs and containers, you, you don't you don't really get there. You only give them 20% of what they need. Um, and so that's just why I've been focusing on services as a platform. Ben. I, I love that. So you're calling it services as a platform. So I've also heard something like that called almost uh, as part of what a serverless application is too. Does that relate to that somehow? I think serverless is one of the services that's in there, right? I mean, people like to get on the serverless hype bandwagon and you could put everything in serverless. I, I, I don't think that's true. I mean, serverless has a place just like everything has a place, but you would want a, ser a function as a service piece is one of the types of ways that you, uh, as one of the types of services within a services as a platform system, right? You would want to be one of the services in there so that a developer who would need to build kind of arbitrary pipelines with sort of multi-stage that are scale out um, would be able to do that and have that integrated into messaging and queuing and all the other pieces. Yeah, because I've often thought that like the function as a service part would be like some kind of the glue that kind of stitches Absolutely. other services. That's exactly there. right. Yeah, I, I think I think that's very uh, that's a very that's a very smart observation. Yeah. So it's a services platform as a service. Is that what services it? as a platform? Services as a platform, and it's this is passed backwards. Yeah, yeah, it's almost the inverse of platform as a service. Because yeah. most platform as a service systems are, are what I call a load your code and go system. So you point at a repo, you load the code up, you turn it on. It's more like web logic or web sphere. It's a very constrained environment. Whereas services as a platform is an unconstrained environment. You're you're literally cherry picking the pieces that you need for a specific application and then maybe using things like serverless to wire those pieces together so that you can get 70 or 80% of your um, business process done before you even have to write the key code. Yeah, and I think this is one of the things that a lot of uh, maybe Cisco customers, maybe a lot of enterprise customers are missing is, you know, when they start talking about building a cloud, they're like, well, we just VMs and object storage and we're good, right? And it's just so, that's, it, it, it's like you said, it's only giving them 20% or hardly any of what, what you need. The real value of these clouds are all the services that they provide or the services on their platform. It's yeah, your gateway I mean, drug. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If I'm a developer and I'm looking at my options, I can go to Amazon and I can, I can, I can get stuff done very, very quickly. Or I can go inside, and you know, if I'm just grinding through trying to build my own services pieces to put my app on top of it, just it takes too long. Yeah. So that's the developer point of view. Obviously, there's some complexity there, and, and you have this other notion of continuous response that kind of plays into that. Tell us about continuous response. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll lead into that by just capping off the the services as a platform thing. I think if you look at platform as a service, that really feeds for that's a focus on developers. And if you look at infrastructure as a service, it's a focus on operators. And services as a platform is really focused on people who are doing DevOps. They're trying to blend those two disciplines. Um, and so that kind of gets that second piece of continuous response, which is just I've been talking about sort of, hey, look, it's not enough for the continuous integration and testing and then continuous delivery and deployment. There's actually this third piece, which is, you know, day two operations, right? Because if you look at, you know, the greats who started a lot of the whole DevOps uh, movement, um, you look at a lot of what they do and in, in, in the talks in like early velocity conference, a lot of it's not really about the testing and deployment of the code so much as 
the ongoing day-to-day operations of the code. How do you understand how it's responding? What do you do in the case of failures and troubleshooting, you know, and so on. And, and so there's a whole thing here, a whole category of DevOps discipline that I think is, is missing, which is continuous response, which is talking about, you know, how do we, um, you know, do advanced troubleshooting? Um, how do we do root cause correlation and analysis? How can that all be in that same kind of agile, uh, methodology. And if you look, you know, a lot of people are starting to uh, apply machine learning and artificial intelligence to actually assist the operator in doing a lot of this stuff. And it, hey, man, I've spent a lot of time doing root cause analysis and correlation across, you know, problem. And, and you know, it's not, it's not magic. You know, you can't have a machine do like, you know, those 25 steps, right? Extract the logs and tell me where they are across everywhere. You don't have to be the, the operator doesn't have to be the person grinding through Splunk or whatever it is to do the analysis. And you look at, for example, the new company we acquired, AppFormix, you know, and they put a whole bunch of machine learning algorithms into the way that they built their operational telemetry tool. And I see this as sort of a thing that's happening across the industry is people trying to figure out, okay, now it's up and running. How do we understand what it's doing? How do we understand how our customers are using it? How do we understand what happens in the cases of failures? How do we respond to it? And there's you know, kind of multiple layers to continuous response, which is sort of the break fix pieces, but then also the long-term capacity planning and, and sort of um, how do we understand how the system is behaving and people are using it. And so it's, it's, you just have to have that final piece there to sort of close the loop. Do you think that it's the same team that's responsible for continuous response? Is it the DevOps crowd? What I see happening a lot, especially with, you know, I'll say Cisco's traditional sort of data center centric customers is is there's a a really still a large focus on the actual infrastructure itself the hardware infrastructure pieces versus you know I'll say the the developer view which is you know you care about your app getting up and running and then there's kind of like this this weird uh, thing happening where there's people that are kind of stuck in the middle that you know are, are supposed to be responsible for the whole thing now, but but maybe don't quite understand all the pieces. Like it seems like there's just a big cultural difference in the way that large companies operate versus the way that you know smaller or medium sized companies operate. Um, maybe it might be more accurate to say there's a seems to be a large cultural difference between the way legacy enterprises operate and kind of newer web scale slash SaaS businesses, right? Yes. Um, I, you know, I, my observation, and I don't know if this is true, but it seems to me to be true is that as enterprises have noticed that there's sort of a, a big gulf between the line of business and the infrastructure teams that they're trying to use DevOps as the primary tool for culture change. Now, you know, maybe they're not all successful. I can certainly point to, you know, examples of, of both successes and failures, but it seems to me that a, a large part of the reason people gravitate, at least at the management level and the leadership level towards DevOps is to try to institute that culture change. And, you know, I think that's the biggest impediment, but I, I wanna give you an example from kind of my own, you know, experiences in 2009, when this is really early on, and cloud scaling was in its infancy and we were doing some consulting, um, we, you know, went to um, Kaiser Permanente and we were doing some architecture work for them. And it was really interesting because suddenly one day for two weeks, we didn't hear from the entire IT team. They just disappeared. And so uh, when they came back, we said, what happened? 
And they said, well, we had three different failures on kp.org, which is like how they communicate with all their customers, how all them, their patients log in, check their medical records and do appointments and everything. They had three outages in a single month. And the reason was is because they had a storage team, they had a network team, they had a security team, they had a database team, they had the app guys, and nobody talked to anybody. Everybody finger pointed at each other, and it was nobody's responsibility for site uptime. And when we look at the web scale guys, we look at the SRE model that Google came up with, we look at how Amazon, the classic Amazon.com business was run and how the developers became responsible for 24 by seven uptime and the operators just built kind of platforms for them to run on top of. You can see that there's a net new model that is designed for speed and nimbleness and for kind of like higher velocity of iterations. And it just seems to be very successful and that's what everybody's starting to gravitate to knowing that they need to get there to be successful. and you know, what I'm seeing is that um, you're, they're getting pushed more and more and the pain's getting acute enough that they're either going to have to get to that model or they're just going to have to give up and start consuming public cloud and, you know, a lot of those infrastructure people just simply won't have jobs. Yeah. Do, do, you, do you think that's the number one reason why cloud has not been adopted as quickly as I think most expected it to be? Private cloud? Enterprise? Yes. Yeah, I, I, think, I think the culture problems are the biggest problem with private cloud. You know, when I have been talking about this stuff for the last six or seven years, I, I sort of have these ways, that, this other way of talking about it, other than pets versus cattle, um, which was sort of my shtick for a long time, is to sort of talk about assembly line IT versus the robotics factory model of IT. If we look at like the way that automobiles were manufactured, you know, even going into the 70s, you'd have all these specialists on the line, the person who puts in the steering wheel, the person who puts in the dashboard, the tires, yada, yada, yada. You know, just like right now, and if you go, if you're putting an app in the data center, you gather requirements for it, and then you got the server people, the storage people, network people, the security people, and it's like a, it's an assembly line. You got all these specialists, but then the automobile, um, you know, industry moved to more of a robotics factory model. So you had the brain surgeons who understood, you know, how to like build like a, you know, automotive factory at scale and to deliver the robots and program the ro robots, and then you had the QA people on the other end, and you know, and that sort of is really what kind of the web scale guys look like. And I and I personally think that we're in a position now where if you want private cloud, you have to build towards that same model as Google uh, and Amazon. You have to be thinking in those same terms. You have to be doing that robotics factory style IT. You can't just do assembly line because assembly line is clearly going to be displaced. Which which would be great if you were starting from scratch. But, but I, I see the resistance because a lot of these older companies simply just have a lot of legacy stuff. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I get it. You know, I'm, I'm not going to tell anybody that that stuff's going to like all, you know, run on Google and that the need for that stuff isn't going to go away. But, you know, I've looked at there as being three major, you know, system shifts over about, you know, uh, 60 years now, right? We had the first major one was mainframes, the mainframe computing era from the 60s into the 90s, uh, you know, early 90s. And then kind of the next shift kind of overlapping with that was the enterprise computing era, which is kind of the 80s into kind of about now. And then overlapping with that's the cloud computing era. And if we look at, at the mainframe to enterprise computing era shift, what IDC calls platform one to platform two, there's a few things you'll notice. One, uh, the size of the market was 40 to 100 times bigger in the enterprise computing era. The number of people who had jobs, the labor pool, the number of vendors was 40 to 100 times bigger, everything, right? So there's still mainframes, they're still in use. Uh, you know, Visa's still doing 25% of credit card transactions on them every single day, but you know, there's not a lot of jobs there. 
and it hasn't gotten any bigger. And if we look at the cloud space, we look at Amazon's growth and we see what's happening. All the net new stuff is in this new model and it seems to be getting captured by public cloud. And so if you want to have that inside your four walls, then you would want to do that, right? So does assembly line T IT go away completely immediately? No, um, but do you get in a position where the labor pool gets tighter, there's less jobs or less of focus, people stop trying to run you know, SAP internally for CRM, they move it to Salesforce. Yeah, all that stuff can happen. So you know, this is one of those situations where you can put your head in the sand and you can pretend that you as the Microsoft Exchange uh, admin are gonna have a job in the future, uh, or you can get to the reality, which is that Microsoft Exchange admin jobs are basically gone. Um, it's just a matter of time, and you know, actually level up and transition your skills. You you know, be a coal miner or start working on solar energy, but you know, pick the pick the right thing for your future. <laughs> so so, what's going to happen to you think public or private cloud? Then, like, do you think it's going to keep going? Is that market going to expand? You think, or is that just well, there are, success, there are success stories for the people willing to put in the money and the time and move to the new model, right? You know, Microsoft is like a, a shining success. They moved to that model and became one of the major cloud providers. You got Walmart, who's in process and, 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 and putting a lot of effort into it. You got AT&T. Uh, you got people who are really quiet about it, like Golden, uh, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. Um, and then you got a lot of aspirational characters that are trying to make the transition, Citibank and so on. And so I, I think that it is a situation where only the biggest companies can really spend that time on it. You know, Apple's spending all the time and money trying to learn. Um, you know, but if you're, you know, a small medium business or a small medium enterprise, it's it's hard to see how you can possibly justify spending that money and time, at least at the infrastructure layer. You should really just be going and consuming public cloud. Yeah, and and so I wonder. Um, you know, there's been a number of companies, including you know Cisco and and others, uh, EMC, and who've who've offered these private cloud solutions. And I wouldn't say they've all been uh, completely a, a smashing success. And uh, is, is there ever going to be some type of vendor that could do well with a public cloud or a private cloud service? You think or? I mean, I think right now that, that that ship has sailed. I mean, OpenStack hasn't been what it needs to be in the time frame that it need to be. It need to be a lot more successful, a lot sooner than it has been. I mean, we're like seven years in now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, VMware hasn't made the changes that they needed to make. Um, and, um, you know, there's really not been anything else going on. And so you, what I'm observing is that because of sort of the failures to execute at the very lowest layers, uh, the infrastructure layers and because people didn't really understand what needed to happen there. Um, what's happened is now they've gotten to the point where they're saying, hey, you know, this isn't really as important as coming up to this new model, changing the culture, moving towards DevOps, thinking about the, these new applications, you know, differently and about velocity differently and enabling developers. So let's just go try to do something else kind of the next layer up. And so that's why I see people focusing now more on platform as a service and also things like Kubernetes and containers where they're looking at those kinds of things as sort of enabling tools that, you know, disintermediate the infrastructure uh, to agree to to a degree so they can focus on where the value is, which is the net new solutions that they're building, net new services, and you know, to really enable line of business to go fast. And then the great thing about going that layer up is like, do you care if it's running on OpenStack or VMware or Amazon right. or Google? No. Yeah. Uh, great example of this is uh, Rag Games, one of um, one of Juniper's customers, uh, Contrail's customers took uh, containers and then open Contrail and welded them together 
and then basically came up with this, you know, very stripped down services platform basis so that wherever you were as a developer, um, whether it was on Amazon or on Riot Games private infrastructure, like nobody cared, you'd have the same compute abstraction, the same network abstraction. So you could talk about security and networking and compute kind of like all using the same model and you didn't have to relearn whether you were on Amazon or you know, their own private infrastructure or bare metal or VMs or containers. Like it just, it always looked the same. Yeah. So is, is the container, um, you know, I, I know that that's super hot now. Everybody's talking about writing these container platforms, and they're great that they go everywhere. Um, how does that fit in with the services as a platform model? Um, because that's still, it's almost just like, um, you know, you're running these components on there, and they probably need to consume things like SMS or, uh, I'm sorry, um, the messaging services and, and things like that, right? I am glad you asked this question because I, I think this is what is, is amazing is that it, it, Kubernetes in particular, I, you know, it's pretty clear to me that it's one. Some people still think Docker's in the race. Uh, I don't. And as an advisor of Docker, I think I got some good perspective there. Um, some people think uh, Mesa. You heard it here. You heard it here. Uh, th some people think Mesa. <laughs> some people think Mesa's in the race. I think maybe they're a runner-up. But one of the things Kubernetes did really differently than a lot of the other systems is they said, "Look, this is about an entire life cycle. So we're actually going to specify how the app is deployed, how many instances of a scaling unit, you know, are in how many locations, and we're going to build in self-healing and resiliency." and auto scaling into the underlying layer um, so that when you deploy an application, you automatically have you know, 10 instances or whatever and it scales up or down and if something goes away, it's automatically replaced. And then we're also gonna de define how software gets updated and uh, deployed and how we do rolling upgrades and incremental deployments, right? So all of the cloud native ways that you sort of manage that new pet-based uh, architecture just built in. It's just, it's just wired in. There's no discussion about how to do it. You know, there's actually thought to uh, application operations on day one. And then what's really exciting about that is that then you can add something like Helm, which adds on top of uh, Kubernetes' way to sort of define that entire application deployment model so that you've got these charts which describe the whole deployment. And so what's exciting about that is, you know, with Docker, you could get like a single container running MySQL, which is not useful. With Kubernetes, you can get an, a, a distributed MySQL service running, you know, with the push of a button using a chart or a distributed Cassandra service. So for me, uh, Kubernetes is the ideal way that you can actually build services as a platform because it's taking into account, you know, everything through continuous response for DevOps. Um, and then you can have sort of like, you know, you can run a single Kubernetes cluster and you can deploy on it, you know, your messaging service and your, you know, data store service and, you know, start to build out all the services. And, and if you look at some of my presentations on this, they're in SlideShare and up on uh, the cloud scaling blog, you'll see that, you know, if you went and you looked at what Amazon does, maybe, you know, OpenStack can't compete with Amazon and, and aggregate and Kubernetes can't, but the entire open source ecosystem can because there's already open, you know, an open source equivalent for 80, 90% of um, Amazon Web Services services as a platform tools. Wow, so that it's almost like Helm is the thing that makes it so that Kubernetes can uh, be deployed. Every, uh, it, it's like that killer app for Kubernetes. It gives you all those services that, um, that upper layer that you need to actually run on these clouds then, huh? Or to, to make it interesting for developers. 
That's that's what I think. That that's how I think you can get competitive. So, in, in terms of uh, just OpenStack in general, we were talking about this kind of a little bit before pre-show, and, and you've, if you sprinkle a little bit of this in, you know, obviously you've got strong opinions on Kubernetes, Docker, and everything else. But, you know, is, is there a future for OpenStack in your view now with the uh, the rapid pace of container tech? Like, is there a place for, for OpenStack in this future? I mean, I, I don't think it's sort of the general marketplace. It seems pretty clear it's going to do well with carriers, and I think it might do okay in sort of the SaaS area, although there's as many, there's as much anecdotal evidence that it's that it's having challenges there as, as there is positive anecdotal evidence. Um, but, you know, in sort of the general ecosystem, you know, OpenStack is the thing that's a counterweight to Amazon and is deployed widely in all the private clouds, um, you know, in all data centers and, you know, is, you know, federated and, you know, compatible and interoperable like that. That's done. That's not going to happen pretty clearly as far as I can tell. So where where is the primary control point now for for enterprise IT? Like, is it is it DevOps owns the, the, uh, the services as a platform layer, like it seems like everyone's in a battle to try to win the control point. Everyone still wants that, or at least vendors think that you know everyone wants that single pane of glass to see all the things. Yeah, that's that's where we're all struggling. Whether it's Cisco or Juniper or any of the existing enterprise vendors, they're all struggling to understand that there's sort of like an emerging. There's two emerging sets of control points, right? One is that it's still the legacy teams for all the legacy mainframe computing era, enterprise computing era systems, right? And, you know, that will continue to be for a while because people aren't spending tens of time forklifting what's on VMware today and shoveling it onto Amazon Web Services. But then the other new emerging control point is that the application developers in the line of business are beginning to get more and more control because there's uh, more acute competition now, right? If you're if you're in the hotel industry, Airbnb is like all up in you right now, right? If you're in the taxi industry or logistics industry, you know, Uber's up in you. I mean, these people are going to have like self-driving, you know, semi trucks and stuff. I mean, it's it's got it's getting real. Like the 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 people who are are people who sit in their vertical, whether it's health service, you know, healthcare or financial services or logistics or whatever, and they say, well, I'm just safe here because I'm the expert at my my vertical, those people are in trouble because somebody else is coming in and they're, and they're saying, I'm a technology company first and I'm gonna apply technology to solve these problems in new ways and they're becoming experts at the domain and they'll become experts as quickly, fairly quickly and then they're gonna apply technology better than you. So right now, the, it's existential, right? Every single large enterprise needs to understand their technology business first, and then they're a specialist in their vertical second. And if they don't do that, then what happens is some upstart or startup comes in and starts using technology leverage against them, and then they haven't built the DNA or culture around that so that they can actually be competitive. And so what's happening is that the control point's now becoming the developer in the line of business. In the past, those people would have had, a, would have, there would have been a stranglehold because the infrastructure teams would basically um, would blink block them, um, you know, <laughs> to keep them to keep them from getting. Hey, their, is that a Scaramucci just threw at us? Their their, uh, their their application deployed, but now they have a choice of just going straight to the public cloud because they can make a case to the 
you know, CEO and CFO that, you know, getting this thing done in three months time versus 18 months time is, is critical to their success and they will win because at the end of the day, all businesses, and this is really hard for infrastructure people and security people to understand, all businesses care more about generating new revenue and creating new opportunities than they do about managing down risk. Yes, they care about managing down risk, but it is always secondary to driving new opportunities and driving new revenue. Wow. Dude, uh, yeah, I definitely see that. I mean, uh, you know, I got a, a, a notification the other day that uh, an account that I had, something that I bought online from a pool company, that their systems had been hacked and my information had been compromised. And it's like, when this happens now, I don't even, it's not even a big deal. You know, like, there, every company has been susceptible to a hack. You know, now there's voting data that's out on the dark web. Like, all the information pretty much is out there. I don't think that... You know, people are as I'll say concerned, at least on the consumer level. It's not it's not completely foreign to find out that your credit card got hacked or that someone's, you know, made a copy of your, your credit card info and swiped it somewhere in another state. Like I think just about everyone's had that happen once or twice. Uh it's it's so if that's the case, you know, I see a lot of companies trying to to kind of battle it out for AI because they could look at me and say, okay, you know, Nikki spends most of her time in Austin, Texas, but we're getting these weird charges in Philadelphia. You know, we need to we need to flag this immediately and shut it down. Um, so I kind of see, you know, this this AI thing that's happening. It's it's terrifying. Uh, I read an article today in the New York Times about uh, AI and what the future might look like. You know, if, if so many more things get automated, and at that point, uh, it will be the service that is provided uh, that people are going to value. That there's going to be a lot of jobs that are just poof going to disappear, and you see it happening. You know, California, they've got you know they're testing out all kinds of machinery to try to like, you know, pick strawberries off of strawberry crust because they don't have enough workers right now to be able to fill that gap. And the machines aren't perfect, but they figure they got to do something. You know, if they can't if they can't find you know enough skilled labor uh, to or unskilled labor to do it, they've they've got to figure out a way to to keep their their crop from spoiling on the vine, literally. Yeah, there's been like a there's been like an escalating set of kind of light bulbs in cloudlands. Or the first light bulb was like, oh gee, wow, now it's cheaper to keep my data around. That's that's amazing. I'm gonna keep more of it because I might need it at some point. And then the next light bulb was like, oh wow, if we figure out how to use big data or if we like apply new techniques, we can actually, you know, mine this data that we've been keeping and, and get more ideas about how to engage our customers and, you know, just how to like manage our products and so on in a better way. And then the next one after that's been like, oh, it turns out that if we have machines do a lot of that analysis for us in an automated fashion, we can do it even faster so that we can have even faster responses um, to what's happening to our customers and give them an even better experience. And, and then I think that the sort of subtext under all that is that if you're doing that, you're keeping up. If you're not, and if you're doing fast first, you're you're getting ahead. And if you're not doing any of it, you're like, oh, what's this? Um, then you're you're getting behind very very quickly, and you're being becoming very ripe to disruption. Totally, and and I mean the whole thing behind the New York Times article was like, look, you know, this is happening. It is going to happen. What is going to happen when you know? the governments of uh, a lot of these uh, countries across the world uh, don't have as much income anymore because they don't have, you know, wages to tax. And so it kind of creates this whole domino effect all because of technology. And that's just, uh, 
it's unfathomable. But hey, if Jack Ma is right and we get to work as half as many hours as we do today and nobody bats an eye, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, that gets into the meta question, which is, are, is our society ready to create a leisure society? And have we um, decided what that means? Because there are certain political ideologies, and now we're like off of the computer topic, <laughs> um, that are basically, you know, it's anathema to them for, for there to be a scenario where um, people might spend a lot of their time on leisure or arts or, or things like that. They, they, they think that that's terrible, but at the same time, we are creating more and more of a situation where um, just the machines can take care of it. And so, you know, yeah. this stuff where we've tried to pretend that there's a certain amount of scarcity, I mean, what do you do when there's really not as much scarcity? Yeah. yeah. You hang out, you read books. No, it's, it's, it's big and large. It's like, like, like Pixar's, Pixar's Wally, where it's big and large. We just coast around in our chairs with our big gulps. Sweet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, God, that's terrifying. It's terrifying. Uh, I got so, it. Uh, oh, go ahead, Nikki. Go. Shoot. No, you uh, go. I just, yeah, one question about your continuous response, Randy. If I want to start, if, if I'm doing continuous integration, I'm doing continuous delivery, where would I start by doing my continuous response? I mean, look at the blog posting I did on this on cloudskilling.com where I really broke it down in three categories um, of what continuous, what, what makes up continuous response. Start there. And then I think the second thing is just start using the terms because what we're really trying to do here with, with adding a term, it's not so much money the waters except acknowledge this something that's already happening. People are doing continuous response today and uh, when they're doing it in operations, they're just, they're not, they're not thinking about it as continuous response, right? There's like a body of work and thinking around continuous development and continuous integration that doesn't exist for continuous response that, that basically needs to. And so really it's it's up to you to sort of get in the conversation and start talking about it, thinking about it as well. Because I'm, I'm just trying to, you know, apply a, you know, a way to categorize that whole group of things. And then the last thing is I think, you know, a lot of where the immediate you know, value is beyond just the discussion and, and having, you know, better terms and ways of thinking about it is to really start looking at what does it mean if you can do operated operator assistance around using machine learning and artificial intelligence, because that's an area that, you know, really is underserved right now. So whether you're building a new startup, whether you are an existing enterprise vendor, um, you know, people are trying to apply you know, these techniques to basically help out. And, and what I've realized that's really interesting is that if you look at most systems that are in production, like I had a buddy who ran the knock at eBay, and when you went into the knock at eBay, right, you had this gigantic dashboard. And in the dashboard, there were zero metrics on like network interfaces, right? There were zero metrics on storage systems. There were all the metrics there were like, how many transactions per second am I getting, you know, into the PayPal system? How many, you know, auctions just ended? It was the, the, the metrics for the knock were about the business and the business processes. And then they had tooling to drill into, oh, we know that when these transactions per second fade at this time of day, that's actually normal because we've got a roll off of people in one country or another, but then we've got a spike at another point in time in the day that that's actually, that's actually something that's abnormal. And so part of what the machine learning can do is we can apply these techniques to our domain specific problems that really, you know, I mean, it's not a one size fits all. 
right? It's actually you have to apply it for your particular for your particular domain. And so you're as you get to mo to learn more about machine learning and start to apply it for your operational tooling, um, you know that could provide a tremendous amount of value in terms of you know uh, returning service levels, maintaining higher number uh, higher service levels, but also returning systems to service you know more more quickly. So, in in terms of the SLAs, then the SLAs for somebody like eBay or not so much at the infrastructure level, but actually at the customer transaction level, like that's a that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, I mean every, that's where everybody is. They just they um, they pretend it's not that way. <laughs> do, do you think that uh, that that I'll say uh, you know the, the the typical large enterprise is starting to understand? Uh, why there are competitors eating their lunch and willing to take bigger risks to usher in a new era of new processes and new thinking and new teams and or or at least train existing teams oh yeah it, it's definitely happening but it's um it's very different per vertical right i mean there's a there's a high level of variance right in financial services in places like retail for certain um you know there's just bit there's a lot more pressure and in other places like uh, healthcare <laughs> the, pr the pressure's there but it's pretty slight and you see the healthcare guys just there's a lot of money in the system and so they they just throw money at problems rather than technology um, and so there's there's variance within uh, the you know the entire marketplace but you know there's definitely places where the pain's acute versus you know sort of just I, I know I know it's happening but I really don't need to worry about it today right. I, I have noticed a trend, though, of, of uh, I'll say, you know, the simpler, cleaner experiences, uh, at least happening on the consumer end, are definitely starting to impact, you know, large enterprises in the way that they communicate with their customers and the way that they, you know, their social media presence, the way that they, uh, that they service their customers. Like, it is, a, it is a huge shift, and it is, a lot of these shifts are hard to turn. Yeah, I mean, sort of for me at the at the core of all this is what I talk about, the change in the customer engagement model. And as people have different kinds of experiences when they go home and they use Gmail or when they go home and they or when they're using their Apple products or when they go home and they log into, you know, a very modern software as a service, you know, interface besides Gmail, like Salesforce or something like that. Um, is that their expectation levels just get to a different place. Like, why can't you do it like these other folks do it? Yeah. So people get calibrated into one other place, and then if you're not paying attention, you wind up looking like the dinosaur. And as soon as you look like the dinosaur, and the perception is that you're a dinosaur, people treat you like the dinosaur, and then it's hard to get back to get back in where um, you should be. And you made a, a, a you know, obvious example of a, of, of a company that has just transitioned on a massive scale is you know as Microsoft has done and why do you think that is you think it was you know a new CEO coming in combined with market pressures no I, I, I must have been some really, a really good strategy there for that to happen yeah I, I love those guys I, I think they're amazing I mean I, I went from maybe you could you could almost call me a Microsoft hater wouldn't be quite true but you could almost call me a Microsoft hater to to you know a big fan i'm not i don't use a ton of their products but I'm, I'm a big fan and and the thing was is that they did spend 10 to 15 years bleeding red ink right they uh and i saw this from the inside i was doing some consulting on for the hotmail team at one point and uh, so they were completely different sort of thinking about solving problems very differently um and then you know there was the xbox live team um there was the office 365 team so there are all these teams 
for a long time that were very not successful, <laughs> um, but they were doing all the learning. And, and if you went back and you looked at Microsoft services, you know, year by year, it was just bleeding ready for 10 years, just learning how to build mega scale data centers and so on. And it was really trivial stuff. I remember when I was consulting for the Hotmail guys, I went in and I talked to the builder of these guys and they were like, yeah, when we first started, we couldn't do any automated builds. And I said, I said, why not? And they said, well, Visual Studio had no command line tools. We actually had to escalate up through our SVP to the SVP who um, was in the chain of command for the Visual Studio people to have them build command line tools so that we could have an automated build process yeah. for for the app. And and it was all that stuff. It's all that stuff. Just real hard learning on Microsoft's part. And and I think anybody that wants to you know if, compete in any way with the web scale guys are kind of in for a similar. Time frame, right? You're not going to get it done a year. You're in, you know, a five, ten year, maybe five year lucky kind of slog of changing the DNA, learning how to be a different kind of business, you know, bringing in, you know, new blood, um, you know, creating early successes, building on those successes. That's what AT&T's been doing at Walmart. That's why I kind of called them out. Um, and you know, and I think Microsoft is pretty much, you know, it's the IBM of this era, right? The the IBM IBM was the was the king of the mainframe. And then they were about going to be disrupted as we went into the enterprise computing era, and they reinvented themselves more as a software and services company, and they were able to make that transition. And yeah. now we're in that similar form of disruption where all the enterprise vendors, Juniper, Cisco, you know, everybody sort of has to try to figure out the same transition. And this is why you see people like Cisco, frankly, doing things like building or buying companies like App Dynamics or you know Juniper buying App Formics, right? We are looking at ways to sort of transform the business. And the challenge in front of us in front of us is how do we become that next generation of cloud enterprise vendor? Uh, and you know, it's it's gonna be tough. It's gonna be hard. And that's part of why I'm at Juniper, which is to help make that happen, make the think different happen. And that's part of why you look at like our new CTO, we hired him out of Google. Like we're committed to um, trying to figure it out. Will we? I don't know, you know, but we're 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 gonna make it, we're gonna do it, take our best shot. I love it. I definitely see it happening at Cisco, you know. I, I think uh, Cisco has a a unique position is this, you know, Juniper. We've been around forever. You know, there's a lot of complexity in the network, just a ton of complexity, especially when you start thinking about like service providers and like, you know, what's happening politically with net neutrality. Like, there's just so many things. But I, I do see sort of this uh, this interest in creating these simplified experiences, you know, and I, I credit Meraki a lot for that because Meraki, you know, it's like, hey, go online, order this thing, we'll ship it to you set it up, boom, 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 it's done. Like those kinds of like intuitive, simple, clean experiences, I'm starting to see it more in our brand. I'm starting to see it more in like the way our products actually look, which is cool. You know, I, I walk into a, you know, pretty much anywhere and everyone's always got a Cisco phone on their desk and you can always kind of like peek over and see how old of a model it is. Uh, but now the, the stuff that's coming out, it looks cool. And you know, I don't know if that's Apple's doing or, or what, but I, I definitely see this sort of trend. The other thing too, is I think that humans just haven't evolved fast enough to be able to process the amount of stimuli that we get on a daily basis. And I see people moving to these clean intuitive experiences in efforts to, to kind of give their brain a break, whether it's like visual input or, you know, uh, when people are, putting a summary uh, and letting people know ahead of time, hey, this is a long read, but I'm just gonna give you this little paragraph and just give you the gist of it up front because you may not wanna spend all your time. And, and I think there's some really interesting studies on time that are happening that uh, that kind of 
to back up this uh, this constant stimuli thing. The effect that it has on you know software and experiences and you know with artificial intelligence and self-driving cars and everything else it seems like it's a pretty cool time to be alive. Yeah, I mean, I think you're making a good observation there, which is that people want to spend their cognitive computing power, their their talent pool, their you know the things that make them special on the things that make them special. And when you're when you're doing all the undifferentiated heavy lifting yourself, you know you can't really get there. Um, you know you're spending time, you know, doing things like deploying an EMC VMAX or whatever, and and so so is the company next to you. That doesn't that's yeah. not really have any value. The value is, you know, if you're a bank and figuring out some way to like increase your the number of transactions you can do, or some new market segment where you can get into and drive new revenue, and and so part of what you're saying on the on the simplification of the user experience is, I want to remove the cognitive overload. I want to not have to think about things like my wireless. I want them to just work, so I can spend my time on things that actually will make a difference for the business. Because my wireless system being better than the guys next door will not make any difference to, to my competitive edge in the marketplace. And, and carrying around boxes of vinyl. <laughs> just, yes. <laughs> you know, I, you, you I, having to wait for a record in Texas, knowing there's a 90% chance it's going to come in the mail warped, not fun. You know how heavy those uh, my crates are? I mean, they're like, they're like 75 pounds each. Brutal. <laughs> oh, man. DJs used to be so fit back in the day, hauling around record bags and crates and tables and stuff. Now it's all digital. It's nuts. I, I do see a, a pivot though for you know people. I, I think that consumers are valuing the human connection. I think consumers are valuing you know simple experiences, even if they aren't as full featured. You know, I think people are getting more comfortable with the idea that, you know, SaaS is a thing and like, hey, it may not have this feature now, but I'll probably have it later. Or, you know, it's not that big of a deal. They'll get to it eventually. I think, you know, people are, are starting to warm up to that. And, you know, I credit Google and, you know, companies like Facebook for and, and Amazon for leading the, the charge on just making things incrementally better and getting away from these sort of, you know, net 30 cycles of, of buying stuff and running it as long as you possibly can before you need to refresh it. Yeah, it's making a good experience for people. Yeah, Huge. that's what it's all about. Huge. Huge. So, Randy, we are about out of time, but uh, I know we can find you at Randy Bias, B-I-A-S. I can't believe I butchered that. Uh, on Twitter, <laughs> are you going to be speaking anywhere in the near future? I think I'm. I think I'm doing something in September. Um, there's like a big SD SDX event. Do you know about this thing? You guys are probably there. What is this? It's probably somebody. Uh, yeah, SDXE. Uh, SDXE. Software defined something exchange. Yeah. Software defined anything exchange. Austin, yeah, next month. And oh, next it's month in Austin. Fun. Give me a call. Take you out to dinner. Let's hang out. Cool. Good times, Randy. Well, always, always, always a pleasure having you on. You're always so insightful, and uh, you know you are, are definitely a trendsetter. You know the, the pets and cattle thing we were talking about uh, before the show. You know you didn't invent that, but you took an old example of it that was kind of outdated from like years before, refreshed it, gave it life. Uh, and just like that, you know, cloud. I, I, I popularized oh. it, yeah. You popularized it. Such a trendsetter. So we'll be looking forward to uh, more future trends courtesy of 
Randy Bias. Always a pleasure. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you, Randy. It was right. great to meet you. Everybody say bye. Bye. Yeah.